love him more now than you ever have. Exodus chapter 32 is a very interesting portion of scripture. And it is the account given when Moses comes down off of the mountain after 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of God. And it is not the most enjoyable passage to read. But nonetheless, there are many valuable lessons to be learned and gleaned in the life of God's people today. There's an interesting expression. God is speaking to Moses whilst Moses is still on top of the mountain. Moses has no idea what's happening below. Of course, God knows all. And God says to Moses in the seventh verse, The Lord said unto Moses, Get thee down, for thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. What an expression. In a relatively short amount of time, in 40 days, just over a month, the people of God had corrupted themselves. I think it's probably a suitable text to visit in every generation, not just this one, but I think it is a particularly helpful text as we look at the day in which we find ourselves now. The people have corrupted themselves. It's interesting, it doesn't say that somebody else corrupted them. It doesn't say that the governing body of the nation corrupted them. They corrupted themselves. And I wonder, before we go any further this morning, how have you been corrupted? I wonder, what did they do? What had they done that caused God to say that they had corrupted themselves? Well, let's look together at the text, and perhaps the Lord may give us something that is meaningful to our current situation. Verse number one, and when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mountain, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron. There's a number of things here that sort of waves a little flag of warning in my mind. The first one is they gathered themselves together. That's always a bad thing. When people get the idea, we're going to get ourselves together here and figure this all out. And it doesn't stop with that. The demand and command that comes next is perhaps the most frightening of all. They say unto Aaron, up, get up, Aaron, and make us gods, which shall go before us. And so you know the account in verse 2 and 3, Aaron says, okay, well, give me your golden earrings, the earrings that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, bring them unto me. And so the people break off the golden earrings, brought them to Aaron. He took them in verse number 4, fashioned it with a graving tool and made it a molten calf. And then they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And so, in verse number 5, to make it worse, Aaron makes an altar before the calf. He says, Tomorrow's a feast unto the Lord, Jehovah. And so they're a double-minded people, and so they got up early the next day, and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink, and they rose up to play. Now, this is what they did. And you might be tempted to say, well, what was wrong with that? Well, a host, a whole host of things 
is wrong with that. Let's start together with that first thing. They gathered themselves together. Why? Had they gathered themselves together to seek God's face? No. Had they gathered themselves together to open up God's word and to see what God would have them to do in the absence of their leader? No. No, they gathered themselves together in mutiny. They gathered themselves together, you could say, in the same spirit that was present in the days of Babel. Genesis chapter 11, you may be familiar with it. The scriptures say the whole earth was one language and of one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there, and they said one to another, Go to, let us make bricks. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Get up, make us a god, let us make brick and burn them Throughly, and they may had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar, and they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Can I tell you that there's a whole generation of people today trying to make themselves a name? And it may look good from a distance, it may look like there's the people's resolution or revolution. There, there we go. They're resolved to make a difference. And we're, and we're going to rise up. But can I just warn you that any sort of gathering together without the presence of God leads only to chaos. I'm not saying we ought to sit by and do nothing, but I'm saying there ought to be a purpose and a direction in our gathering together. You might say, well, oh, What's the big deal? Well, you continue to find what the big deal is because the outcome of their gathering together without the instruction of God's given leadership, which was Moses, they decided they wanted another leader. Moses delayed his coming out of the mountain. They said, as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not what has become of him. We don't know what's happened to them. All they knew is that 40 days ago, he went up into that mountain where there was a dark cloud and thundering and lightning. For all they knew, he was dead. So we need another leader. This smacks of self-sufficiency. And not only did they want another leader, but at this point, they wanted another God. They had just about enough. Perhaps they wouldn't have said it quite like that, but you might say, was this just a wild idea? I mean, who on earth come up with the idea, let's make ourselves a golden calf? That's a bit of a strange thing to do. No, no, no. It's very interesting when you look back at the history of Israel, where they were once living for hundreds of years in Egypt, and the very center where the Israelite families were living was the center location for the Egyptian god Apis who was a golden cow. He represented the powers of nature, strength and fertility. And so, hey, there was always a constant longing in the hearts of God's people to go back to Egypt, a constant pining for the world they left behind, and this was their chance. They had become so accustomed, years and years and years of living next to false worship and false gods, they had become so accustomed to His worship because of the location of his principal seat in their own neighborhood. And so, it made sense. Do you remember that God back in Egypt? The one whose headquarters, is, his altar was set up in our own neighborhood. Do you remember him? Perhaps he'll help us. 
You might say, how did that happen? How did they go from being delivered from the Red Sea, being fed with manna from above, water from the rock? How did they go from being led by a pillar of fire and by and a pillar of cloud? How on earth did they go from following the one true living God who so evidently proved himself to them to all of a sudden following, making a golden cow and saying, here's your God. How'd that happen? I'll tell you how it happened. I believe it happened long, long, long before they got to that point. I believe it began way back in Egypt when they had become acclimated to their surroundings. They had become climatized, you could say. They had allowed the influence of the world around them to have such, a, such an impression upon them, such an influence upon them that it was very easy. At this point in time, it was very easy for them to make the switch over. They adapted. They adjusted. You heard of the old metaphor of the boiling frog, haven't you? They say, uh, it's of, of course questionable as to whether it ever, ever happened, but they said that some prominent university years and years ago decided they'd do a little experiment and they dropped a frog in boiling water and it hopped up out of that pot as soon as it was dropped in because it said, I can't live here. And so then they put it in tepid water, very cool and calm, and, and they began to increase the heat on the, on the hob one degree at a time. And the frog sat there nice and cozy in his little pot and his little bit of water. And little by little, the temperature began to rise until finally, you know the metaphor, the frog was cooked to death. You say, what's that got to do with Israel? Or what's that got to do with me? Well, I think we've been living in such a day and age when God's people have become so accustomed to the darkness around us. We've allowed the culture and we've allowed the world to have such an effect that little by little, Satan has been turning up the temperature and we don't even realize it. We become more and more like the world around us and we are cooking and not even acknowledging it. Perhaps the saddest thing about the people of God in this day and surely in our own day is that they didn't even see it. I'm reminded of Lot. Do you remember? Lot went down to live in Sodom. And you know the account. The city was filled with wickedness and darkness and finally God said enough is enough and Abraham pleaded on behalf of the people of of Sodom and Gomorrah and of course there weren't enough uh, righteous people there and and uh, we're given a little bit more insight in Peter and Peter writes for us in his letter he gives us a little bit more understanding of exactly what Lot was going through but the Bible says in verse number six of 2 Peter chapter 2 and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes condemned them with an overthrow making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly and he delivered just Lot, who was vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. You know what happened to Lot? Day after day, he listened to the rubbish of the world. And day after day, he watched the sinful behavior of the world. And it began to vex his soul. Day after day, it affected him so much that when the angels came to deliver him, he didn't want to leave, did he? He and, he and his family had to be drugged out of Sodom. And I think that's just the way that so many of God's people are today. That God is calling us to leave this world of darkness and live a life of holiness. And so many of us want to hold on to the things of the world like Lot. So many of us are pining for Egypt like the children of Israel. 
We don't want such a radical Christianity, but the truth is it's not a radical Christianity, it's a normal Christianity. We've only allowed Christianity to be softened and we've only allowed a life of following Christ to become easy and comfortable because we live in this generation and we live in this culture. But I believe we've been affected just like the children of Israel had been. Can I ask you this morning, what about you? Has this world affected you? Living in this world and watching the darkness and wickedness all around us and listening to the conversations, has your conversation become like theirs? And have you allowed, have you allowed yourself to be sucked into and drawn into watching the rubbish and the nonsense that everybody else is? Have you become just like the world in which you live? Now, this is where it began, but back in our text, it's interesting. It, it, I don't think Israel, I don't think Aaron and the children of Israel wanted to leave Jehovah. That's an interesting thought. Because if you look in verse number five, the scriptures say this, and Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, before the golden calf, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast unto the Lord. That's Jehovah. And so tomorrow they got up early and offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings, presumably unto Jehovah their God. But can I tell you, you can offer sacrifices all day long to the one true living God, but as long as you are trying to offer sacrifices to him and to bow down to a golden calf made of your own hands, it's good for nothing. It's useless. You say, oh, but, but they didn't mean to. They didn't mean to, to go off track, but they did. You say, how could they put themselves beneath a God that they made with their own hands? You ever wonder that? How could they pull the earrings from their ears, chuck it in the fire, watch Aaron grave out that golden calf, and then bow down and say, this is our God? How could they do such a thing, such a preposterous idea, that the earrings that were once in their ears just a few hours ago are now their God? They knew that that wasn't their God, but how could they submit themselves beneath such nonsense? I'll tell you how it happened. They grew weary of waiting for the absent one. And we are living in a world of Christians who have grown tired of waiting for the absent one. They were tired of not knowing what was going to happen, and they were tired of not being in control. And let's be honest, we are a people that like to be in control. That's a part of our human genetic makeup. We like to be in control. We like to know what's happening. We like to have some measure of authority, some measure of, of uh, direction. And so making a God of their choice would put the control back into their hands. So they built themselves a God. And so have many of you. I have not built any God. I don't have a golden calf in my back garden. What are you talking about? How dare you? I'll tell you exactly what I'm talking about in Romans chapter 1. I don't have to tell you what I'm talking about. I'll tell you what God is talking about in Romans chapter 1 and verse 21. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but they became vain in their imagination. Their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools. And they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. Do you know what we've done today? We haven't made a golden calf to worship, but what we've done is we've taken God from off his high, holy, righteous position and brought him down on the same level as man. How many times have you heard somebody say this? Well, my God is not like that. Well, that's not the God I serve. You know? 
That's not the God that I serve. And I would have to say to you, you're absolutely right. Because you fashioned the God after your own imaginations. And you're no longer worshiping the one true living God. You've done what Israel has done. You have brought God from where he is and ought to be. And you decided you don't like that view of God. And you don't like the view of God that he's given us in his word. And you've decided you'll make your own God. You've got a better idea of who God should be. And so we'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And we'll put it all together in the melting pot. A little earring from here and an earring from there. I like, you know, I like that thought and that philosophy from Buddhism. So I'll take that. And I like this little thought and philosophy from Hinduism. I'll take that, chuck it all in a pot, mix it all together. There, that's my God. And no offense, but that God is just as lifeless as the golden calf was. It's dead. Well, I worship God in my own way. I bet you do. I don't like anybody telling me how I ought to worship. That's absolutely fine, but you're no different than Israel. The God that you serve is just as lifeless as that golden calf. Now, they imagined, they imagined that the God that they could now see, that they had made out of gold, was better than the immortal, invisible, God-only wise. They were so deluded and so deceived that they had somehow imagined that the God that they had made in front of them was better than the God that had just set them free. Can you imagine? And to make it all worse, make it worse, the Bible says Aaron made it with a graving tool just the way he wanted it. We're living in a generation where there are more gods and more religions and more denominations than there's ever been before in the history of humanity. You think, oh, well, the, the Greek gods and the Roman gods, and, you know, they had a lot of gods. Yes, they did. Egyptians had more than 2,000. But there's more today than ever before. Because they are still there and people are still creating their own view of God and, and every denomination has their own view of God and their own imagination and every individual seems to imagine they don't, when every time you reject what God's word says about who God is, you're fashioning God into your own image. And no offense, but the God of the so-called 21st century church has become more relevant and more palatable and more acceptable in an ever-changing world. And therefore, we've got to adjust and although it has become more acceptable in the eyes of this world, it has become rejected in the eyes of God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, speaking about the children of Israel, and he gives us some very helpful words. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse number 11, speaking about the wilderness wandering. He said in, verse, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, Now all of these things happened unto them, that's Israel, for in samples or types. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. So these things have been recorded for us. These are types. And so therefore you might say, well, I've not made a golden image, but you've made a type of a false god. And whenever we turn away, that's myself included, whenever we turn away in heart from leaning exclusively upon God himself, we in principle are saying, get up, make us gods. Now, I think another contributing factor to the nation of Israel making a false god that day was their unbelief. They didn't believe Moses was coming back. 
They didn't believe that their God was going to come down and help them and guide them any longer. They thought it was all over. So let's, let's get up, make ourselves new gods. Unbelief caused them. Unbelief caused them to be self-propelled, self-motivated. And I wonder how many today are so self-motivated. We got to do something. What are we going to do? Sit in our hands. We got to do something. Get up. We've got to do something. Can I just say to you, a doubt of God's word will always lead to a departure of God's presence. When you begin to doubt the truth of this, then you will very quickly leave the presence of God. And as you look at our text, notice some very interesting observations. In verse number six, they were eating and drinking and they rose up to play. Can I tell you the majority of Christians today are playing? Playing. You're playing church. You're playing. You're not, you're not real. You're not, we're not sincere. We're not genuine. We're playing games. They're playing. What did it mean by playing? Well, verse number 19 further tells us, It came to pass as soon as he came nigh into the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. Okay, so now we know that they're playing involved dancing. You go to a lot of churches today, there's a lot of dancing going on. Playing. Somebody once said to me, you know what, you all got some boring songs, you know. We haven't come here to play. We, we, we don't come here to play. We haven't come here to dance. We come knowing we've come before the one true living God. It goes on. Not only were they playing and dancing, but in verse 25, the Bible says, when Moses saw that the people were naked, they had engaged into the licentious practices of that false god they become in 40 days time they become so degraded they become so depraved they didn't become it just it was revealed it's always been there and and we have a kind of christianity in this century that permits any kind of behavior Live any way you want to live. Our God is loving and our God is merciful and our God is gracious. And yes, he is. But he's also a holy, just God. I was appalled. Somebody sent a link a couple of years ago of a very prominent church, worldwide church. And the attire of the women coming out leading dancing worship was appalling. It looked like this playing and dancing, nakedness. So what's the remedy? Is there a remedy? Yes. I think there is. What does God think about it? Let's start with that. What does God think about it? It's okay. God knows my heart. Yes, he does. You can say what you want to say, but God knows me. I wonder how that worked that day. You've heard that before, haven't you? God knows me, knows my heart. He also knows that the heart of man is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. So the modern world says, follow your heart. Is that what you tell the drug addict? Is that what you tell the, uh, the murderer, the rapist? Follow your heart. What's the remedy? Verse number nine, listen to what God says. The Lord said unto Moses, I've seen this people and behold, 
It is a stiff-necked people. You know what that means? Stubborn. Set in their ways. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them, that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. Now that's what God thinks. Enough is enough. Now every once in a while somebody says, if there's a good God, then how come he doesn't do something about all the tragedy in the world? Because if God did something about all the tragedy in the world right now, some of you might be consumed. The very ones that said, you wish God would come and do something about it. You better make sure that you are right with God yourself because in calling down the judgment of God, you might be consumed along with it. And at that present time, the only one who is going to escape the judgment of God, if God were to pour out his wrath, was Moses because he was up in the presence of God. And can I say the only way to es escape the wrath and judgment of God, which everybody wants for the criminal, don't we? Yes. Everybody wants justice for the criminal. God, come down and get him, won't you please? Oh, they've done me wrong. I wish God would just give justice. But what if he gave justice to you? Are you ready for that? And so God says, I'm going to destroy them. But let me give you some encouragement. There is an intercessor. There's somebody who speaks to God on behalf of the people, who pleads the cause of the people, who pleads the case of the people. I love what John writes. He said, therefore, uh, if, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have a defense attorney. We have somebody that stands on my behalf before God. By the way, if you get the big idea that you're going to stand out, I'm going to tell, I'm going to give God a piece of my mind. The second you enter into the presence of God, you'll be leveled on your face. The idea, the arrogant idea that you're going to walk up into God and give him a piece of your mind is a lie from hell. No man walks up into the presence of God. That's a fantasy. That's a fantasy. Now, don't misunderstand God in this text. You think, oh, well, God, he's a me. He's going to kill everybody. No, 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 no. Don't misunderstand God. Let me remind you, he just brought these two million plus people out of bondage. He delivered them from slavery. He set them free, broke their chains and destroyed their enemies in the process. And he fed them and they took care of all their needs. This is not a God that is an angry God. And a, well, he is angry, of course, but this is not a God that is just a, a, an un, unmerciful God that's destroying people left, right, and center. These are people who had turned their back over and over and over again and made a cow and said, there's our God. That cow brought us out of Egypt. Can you imagine? And so what was deserved was what was coming. But God himself provided an intercessor. Moses didn't walk up there because he was a good man. He walked up there because God had put his hand upon him, set him apart for the work, and called him to be an intercessor for the people. That was God's plan, that there would be someone who would stand before him on behalf of the people. And God guided him in this direction. In fact, in verse number 10, uh, when, when God speaks, he says this, let me alone. Here's what he was saying to Moses. Look, your job is to intercede. You're an intercessor. Many have said that this was a call for intercession. And then another thing, God is testing to make sure this man is what he ought to be in the same time. Because when God calls a man into his service, he always continuously tests them and tries them to make certain this man will be true to his calling. And he says there, I will make of thee a great nation. It was a test of Moses' motives. It was a test of his singleness of purpose and faithfulness and mission. Many people of God said that to you. You'd say, okay, come, I've been waiting for this. 
God's going to make me great. God's going to make of me a great nation. Moses said, hold on a moment now. This is not the plan. Can I tell you the only solution today to a self to self-corruption? Would you look this way? Your only hope of self-corruption is an intercessor. Somebody besides you. And Moses is only a type of our great mediator and intercessor, the Lord Jesus. The scriptures say there's one mediator between God and man. That's the man Christ Jesus. The Bible says when Jesus rose from, resurrected on the third day from the grave, that he sat at the right hand of God where he ever liveth to do what? Make intercession for the saints. He's interceding for us. And Moses, on three points, intercedes for the people. Now watch this, because I believe that if you've been born again, you and I have been called to enter into this labor, this work of intercession. And if you're going to intercede, if you're going to pray for people and pray for God's mercy, then it's got to be on the basis of these three points. Look what he says in verse number 11. And Moses besought the Lord as God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people? Now, do you remember God said to Moses, these are thy people which you brought out. No, no, no. These weren't Moses' people. These were God's people. And Moses didn't bring them out. God brought them out. And so Moses first plea, God, these are your people. These are not my people, but these are your people. They belong to you. You have purchased them. And the greatest plea that you could ever make before a holy God is that these people belong to you. Just like Paul stood up, if you remember, in the city and he said, God has, there are much people in this city. And so therefore he pleaded for mercy until God's people were gathered into him. There's a second plea. Verse number 12. Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, for mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Here's the second thing. The glory of God was at stake. Would you look this way? The glory of God is at stake today. That's why the psalmist wrote, Lord, it is time for thee to work, Lord, for the people have made void thy law. And in prayer and intercession, the Lord Jesus pleads with his Father, look, your glory is at stake. And that's the way you and I ought to pray. We shouldn't pray for somebody to be healed just so they can enjoy life a little bit longer. Think about that. Well, no, let's pray for the healing so they can enjoy life a little longer. Why? Is this, is this enjoyable? No, 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 no. We pray for the healing, for the glory of God, that God may be seen and recognized, and doctors may step back and say, I don't know how that happened, but we didn't do it. Amen. That's why we pray. That somebody might be raised up and say, God himself healed me. Amen. Not a man, not a doctor, not medicine, but God, for the glory of God. Amen. That's why we pray this. That's why we intercede. That God may be glorified. And there's a third thing in verse number 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self. The promises of God. God, you said, your word says. And on the basis of these three things, Moses interceded. And in verse number 14, the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Do you know why your prayers aren't being answered? You ever wondered that? God's not answering my prayer. I'm reminded of what James says, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. If you're not living a righteous life, there's no point in you thinking God's going to answer your prayer. I remember when Tommy Wall first came to know the Lord Jesus as a Savior, I'd go down to the, to the uh, traveler site there and have Bible studies, and, and uh, one of the fellows said to me, I don't, God's not answering my prayers. I, don't. I said, well, are you, are you trying to follow him? And he said, what? 
yeah. I said, well, tell me about the way you live. And uh, he went on, to, he was a Catholic man, and he said, well, you know, he and his wife would, would rob all week long and go in and confess their sins before the priest and think that was okay, then they'd go out and do the same thing again. I said, it doesn't work that way, friend. You can't live an unrighteous life and expect God to answer your prayers. So you can sit there in anger and grumble, if there's a God, how come he doesn't hear me? When you're living such an ungodly life. Get that right. And your prayer, the motive of your prayer has got to be guided by these things. God, save this soul. Save people today for your glory, Lord, that you might have more people to sing your praise for all eternity. Because you're worthy. And you've promised that whosoever call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Can I tell you, Jesus is our great high priest. He is our mediator. And now, if you've been born again, you've entered into his work. We become co-laborers together with him. And we are now kings and priests, aren't we? Yes. And we have the, the opportunity now to go before the throne of God on behalf of this nation, on behalf of this city. So there's nothing we can do, you know, pro they're going to make a law that we can't protest anymore. And all we can't do anything. Yes, you can. Go to the throne room of God. Bring your protest to God on your knees and in tears and weeping. Pleading for the glory of God to be seen and made known. And not only have we become priests in the eyes of God, but we've also been given the ministry of reconciliation. And that's exactly what Moses was involved in. Just a slight picture of the Savior, but not even, not even, doesn't even, he pales in comparison. The book of Hebrews is written to explain how much better Jesus is. In fact, it's interesting when Moses goes back up in verse 30, look at it and close. I'll say this last and I'll close. Came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, ye have sinned a great sin and now I will go up unto the Lord. Peradventure I shall make an atonement for your sin. I might. Maybe I'll make atonement for your sin. But that's not the heart of Jesus. The Lord Jesus made atonement for our sin long before we ever asked for it. Long before we ever sought it, Jesus laid down his life. Was, his, his own blood was shed. And he took the blood to the mercy seat on our behalf long before we were ever interested. And Moses said, if I feel like it, I'm going to offer atonement. He was a good man. Thank the Lord for him. But he was only just a slight picture of Jesus. Today, if you're here and you've been living an ungodly life and perhaps you've, you've been brought here today because you're looking for something, you know the world is turned upside down and you're frightened to death, nervous about what's happening. Maybe that's the problem. Can I tell you that the first thing that you've got to get right is you and God. And you need, a, you need a, a mediator, an intercessor. And that's not me. Well, I will pray for you, but your mediator is Jesus. Your way to get right with God is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I urge you to come to him. Now, Christian, some of you perhaps have begun to make golden images. Now's the time to smash them up. Burn them in the fire, drink them down, and get back to worship in Jehovah. God willing, tonight we're going to look at the rest of this chapter. And there's an interesting verse I want you to look at there, and we'll spend some time on it this evening. But... The verse says in verse 26, Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Can I ask you this morning, who is on the Lord's side? Are you? I hope you are. Let's pray together. Father, we come before thee in the name of Jesus, our intercessor, our mediator. And we thank thee, Lord, that 
we can come to thee. We are no longer banished from thy presence because of our sin, but we are able to come directly to thee because of Jesus. We thank thee that atonement has been made. But Father, I pray that if any one of thy people here this morning have begun to imagine, begun to craft a new God, because they aren't quite satisfied with what they find in thy word, Lord, I pray this morning thy spirit may show them the mistake they're making. May they return to the truth of thy word and the truth of thy character. I pray that we as thy children may become intercessors like Moses. That we might pray day and night. We might learn how to pray. Teach us to pray, Father. That we might plead not just for the comfort of humanity, but for the deliverance of their souls for thy glory. For thou art worthy, Lord. And truly, thy glory is at stake today. Father, this city has blasphemed the name of thy Son. This nation is passing more and more laws and trampling beneath their feet the truth of thy word and the truth of our Savior. And we pray for thy glory's sake, Lord, rise up. For thy glory's sake, Lord, we ask of thee to move. Guide by thy Spirit as we consider these things in Jesus' name.